We, as I've mentioned, are in Isaiah chapter 9, continuing on in our series, His Name Shall Be. Today we're looking at His Name Shall Be Mighty God. I need to back up a little bit and review just so we're all on the same page as we walk through these names and this passage here in Isaiah chapter 9, if you remember, Isaiah is, the prophet is, is giving a word from God, and earlier, if you look back, if you look at chapter 7 and chapter 8, uh, Isaiah is telling the, the people of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, that the Assyrians, the Assyrians, the people who destroyed the northern kingdom, are on their way. They're going to attack us as well that that's coming, that that's on its way, that there is this bad thing on the horizon, he says. And then, as he turns into chapter 9, he begins chapter 9 with the word but, in our version here in the ESV. In some other versions, it starts with the word nevertheless. The Assyrians are coming. We're going to be destroyed. Nevertheless, but... There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. This bad thing is on the way, but nevertheless, something else is coming. He goes on to say that darkness will yield to light, that joy will be increased, Isaiah tells us. Why? We see it in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah gives a promise that says there is one to come. There's someone who is coming, a child who is to be born, a son who is to be given that is going to give us hope. The Assyrians are coming nevertheless. Our joy will be increased. Our darkness will yield to light because a new leader, a new king is coming. And as he declares that in verse 6 of chapter 9, he, he gives five names, four names, that, that we see here as well as another one earlier in chapter 7 that we want to look at in this series. Mighty, wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and Emmanuel. These are not just names that Isaiah is giving here in chapter 9. They're titles. They are accomplishments. And they are names for God. And yet he says there's someone who's coming that will be this person. So, in this birth announcement, what does it mean for us, for you and I, in the midst of this? Last week, we looked at Wonderful Counselor, was the first name in the list. And we looked at what do those words mean, where can we find them in other places in the Bible, how, how what do they matter for you and I? And it's pretty easy to understand the idea of Wonderful Counselor, that there is a trusted advisor, but not just a trusted advisor, but one who has unbelievable awe, who is incomprehensible in his counsel to us. He is a wonderful counselor. And Jesus, we talked last week, 
was a wonderful counselor. He was a wonderful counselor even before he was born. We talked about some places in the Old Testament where we saw that, even primarily in the creation story, that he was a counselor in the midst of that. That Jesus was a wonderful counselor as he lived on earth, and much of the teaching that he did was a wonderful counsel. Jesus was a wonderful counselor following his death and resurrection. But the part that stood out for me last week, and I know it stood out to some of you, was when we talked about how is it that Jesus is a wonderful counselor for you and for me. And again, we see that picture. That picture begins for us at the very beginning. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve wandering around. Eve comes upon the serpent who gives evil counsel to her. Did God really say not to eat from this tree? Did he really say that you would die? You won't die, he said. And Eve listens to the evil counsel that comes from the serpent, takes the fruit, bites it. Adam shares in that. And all of the world is ruined, changed at least by sin and marked by sin from that point on. The evil counselor coerces them to bring sin into the world. But the wonderful counselor, Jesus, brings redemption to the world. And now, not only does Jesus replace the evil counselor that we find in Genesis chapter 3, but the New Testament tells us over and over that Jesus now sits beside the Father at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf, speaking to the Father for you and for me, giving counsel to God, advising the Father regarding his children. We have hope this morning because Jesus is interceding. Jesus is sitting beside the Father today, speaking on your behalf and on mine. What's he saying as he sits there beside God? I think, as we talked about last week, I think he's saying, pour out all of your wrath on his sin because it's covered by my blood. His name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. His sins are covered. He has hope today because he's one of mine, Jesus says to the Father. He intercedes on our behalf. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. The second title that we find in Isaiah chapter 9 is Mighty God. Again, I want to look at both of these words so that we can get a picture of how it's used in other places in Scripture so that we can have a, a, a better understanding of what exactly God is saying through Isaiah when he uses the words mighty God. The word mighty, the Hebrew word for mighty is gibor, and that word means, translated means, uh, manly or vigorous or hero or champion. That's the mighty word. It's, a, it's the adjective of an overcomer. It's commonly used all through the Old Testament, especially in, in the books of uh, Samuel and Chronicles, um, specifically referring 
to the, the, giving the details of the exploits of great warriors all through the Old Testament, but mostly we see it when it's talking about David's mighty men. We see that same word used over and over talking about his group of mighty men. The word God, obviously, is El. It's a generic word that translates as God. It's generic in the fact that it's used over and over throughout the Old Testament as God, El. But it also, it's not just a a common name for God, but it's attached in all, not all, in lots of the other names of God, like El Elyon, the Most High, or El Shaddai, which means God Almighty, or Elohim, which means strong creator, or El Royai, which means the God who sees. El, E-L, is the phrase that's used over and over in combination with those to talk about God. So Isaiah gives us this picture, who is this mighty God? One of the places that we see it that we're going to have on the screen for you to look at is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10 is the story of Moses. He has gone to the top of Mount Sinai. He has brought down the Ten Commandments, but when he gets down to the bottom of the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the Israelites are worshiping a calf. They're worshiping a, a statue of a calf, a golden calf. Moses, in anger, breaks the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets that he's been given, And it has to go back to receive a second set. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, this is the story of Moses um, receiving that second set and then God's instructions, God's instructions to Moses. And we read it here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 12. I want you to see a few words in here. but, But even more than that, to hear this picture of mighty God. And now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, are you as of this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And then in verse 17, it says this. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, this is the same word, the mighty, and the awesome God, again, the same word used for God there who is not partial and takes no bribes. Verse 17 again, for the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, great, mighty, awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Continuing on in verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. 
who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Do you see the picture of mighty God that's being used here in Deuteronomy? That's the picture of the God in the Old Testament. Moses is saying, you know this mighty You know this God. He's the one who brought the plagues on Egypt. He's the one who, as we were running out, opened the Red Sea so that we can go through. This is the mighty and awesome God. This is the God. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things. That's the mighty God. And in Isaiah's time, there would have been great hope in a mighty God. Remember, the Assyrians are on their way. The Assyrians are gonna bring destruction to the tribe of Judah. And Isaiah is holding out hope that there is a mighty God, the one from Deuteronomy chapter 10, the one who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, that mighty God is our hope. They wanted a mighty God. And even in the New Testament, they wanted a mighty God, someone who would help them to throw off the oppression of Rome. But that's not the picture that Isaiah paints here in chapter nine. He gives us that word. He helps us to understand it in that way. But he started, verse 6, with, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Isaiah helps us to see and to understand the incarnation here in chapter 9, verse 6. But he confuses us when we try to understand mighty God, one who parts the Red Sea, but is a child who is born. Because mighty gods aren't born. Mighty gods aren't born. It's hard for us to even put that together in our minds. It's hard for us to understand what, how, how, How can a a mighty God, especially as the one that we've talked about here in the Old Testament, the one that we have seen and remembered and reflected on and celebrated over and over from the God who brought us out of Egypt, how can we reconcile that picture with this picture? One commentator says it this way, and I'm just going to quote him. He says, You see, in the conception of Christ in Mary's womb, God did something that had never been done before and will never be done again. By the power of the Spirit, God brought together two radically different realities into a single unit. He wedded humanity and divinity in the womb of Mary and in the person of Jesus. God transversed an infinite gap to bring together his own divine nature and our human nature in one person. 
It's an amazing display of power right there in the womb of the virgin. God sends his son, our savior, to be both mighty God and human man. Something that has never been done before and will never be done again. But he combines those two radical different realities in a single unity. This is both biologically impossible and at the time theologically blasphemy. And yet, as we flip the page into the New Testament, we read, as the angel announces in Luke, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, he says to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, for nothing is impossible with God. Mighty gods are not born, and yet... God does exactly that. Since his son, completely 100% human, 100% man, and 100% completely God, all at the same time, bonded together in ways that we cannot understand and we cannot comprehend. And yet, he is both God and man. So if Jesus is, in fact, the child that is to be born, the son that is to be given, the one who the government will be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Mighty God, how does he do that? Is Jesus, in fact, Mighty God? How does he show his mighty godness is the question, I think. And I think anyone that's familiar with the New Testament, anyone that's familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you have a pretty good understanding, a pretty good picture of how Jesus shows his mighty godness. Jesus makes blind eyes see. Jesus makes lame legs walk. He makes withered hands and feet instantly restored. Jesus makes rotten skin whole and new. Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus stretches five loaves and two fish into a feast that feeds more than 5,000. Jesus casts out demons and brings back the dead to life. Jesus calms storms and has fish that literally jump into fishermen's nets. Jesus shows his might, Jesus shows his godness, Jesus shows his power over creation over and over and over. Jesus' power over creation, really over all things physical, proved over and over and over that all things were made in him and through him and without him, not anything was made. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. He is a mighty God. 
And Jesus uses his mighty godness in a different way than the God that we see in the Old Testament. The God that we see in the Old Testament brings plagues on Egypt so that his people might be free. He opens up the sea. He, he casts down fire from heaven to burn the altar. He is seen in, in unbelievable, incomprehensible ways that no one else can replicate or duplicate. But in the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus does things differently. He doesn't call fire from heaven. He doesn't confuse armies into self-destruction. He doesn't bring plagues on his oppressors or part the Red Sea. No, Jesus uses his mighty godness for reconciliation and restoration. Jesus, in the New Testament, is about redemption and making broken things new. Even in that list of Jesus' accomplishments, those things that I shared, let me read them to you again. He made blind eyes see. He made lame legs walk. He made withered hands and feet restored. He made rotten skin whole and new. He cast out demons. He brought dead back to life. He calmed raging storms and seas. Those things are all pictures of a mighty God who uses his mighty godness in a way of reconciliation and restoration. Jesus shows he is a mighty God in a different way than the Old Testament picture of mighty God. The truth is, is that in the New Testament, what we see more than anything else is that Jesus redefines what it means to be powerful. Jesus redefines what it means to be mighty. He redefines power. And we read it in Philippians chapter two. We see this picture, you know these verses. Paul tells us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus redefines power. He redefines mighty God. He didn't count equality with God, something that he should grasp, but instead empties himself takes on the form of a servant, being born in our likeness. And when he was found in human form, he humbled himself, all the way to the point of becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, Paul says. Therefore, 
because he has done this, because he has redefined it for us, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, mighty God, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus uses his mighty Godness in that redefinition so that God might be seen in him. Jesus' mighty Godness is about pointing to the glory of God so that others might see him. Jesus redefines power and mightiness throughout his life, but it's not easily understood nor quickly grasped. It's difficult for you and I, I think, to understand that completely, but it was even difficult for those who were with him day in and day out, week after week, year after year. We have two separate incidences in the New Testament about the disciples arguing over who would be the greatest, who could be, who could be the one that sits at Jesus' right hand, who is the most important, who is the most powerful or mighty. One time, as they're walking along, Jesus says, what, what is it that you guys were, were talking about? This is in Luke chapter 9. He says, what is it that you were talking about? And they're ashamed. They don't want to answer. But they finally say, well, we were arguing over which one of us would be the greatest. And Jesus takes opportunity to tell them, if you want to be like me, if you want to be with me, if you want to be a part of me, if you want to be a part of what I am doing and what I am here for, you have to understand this. If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. He even pulls in a child and says, you must come like this child. I'm not about being the greatest. I'm not about being the first. I'm not about being the top. I'm not about being number one. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm here. I'm here to serve I'm here to meet needs. I'm here to wash feet. I'm here to restore brokenness. I'm here to bring reconciliation and redemption. I'm here not to show in the way of the Old Testament that I'm a mighty God, but I'm here instead to become like you so that you might have hope. One of those teachings followed the Last Supper. And that's how we're going to conclude our service this morning as well. Jesus stands before his disciples that night and says, this is my body which will be broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. Giving them the picture of what is about to happen in just a few moments. And as they hear that picture and as they try to understand it and as it goes into their minds, the next thing that you see in the story 
is that they begin to argue over which one of them will be the greatest. It's difficult for us to comprehend that. It's difficult for us to understand it. But our hope this morning is that Jesus is a mighty God, that Jesus takes and harnesses the power that is given to him by the Father, redefines that power, and then comes to earth, becomes man, lives a perfect, holy, sin-free life, willingly plots a course to Jerusalem, set for the cross. He takes an unbelievable and crushing punishment. He hangs on the cross for you and I so that his broken body, so that his perfect blood can be poured out for us. Jesus, our mighty God, humbles himself to the point of death so that we might have the hope of eternal life. Our mighty God became man, became sin for you and I so that we might have hope. That's what we're going to celebrate together this morning. The worship team is going to come and lead us. The elders are going to help us this morning. We have open communion here at Richland. There's an invitation in your bulletin. We just ask that you can read that and live under that invitation. We would love to have you be a part of celebrating in communion with us this morning. In just a moment, the elders will release each row. And as you come up, there will be elements here on these tables. Uh, We invite you to take them. There's two cups that are stacked together. Uh, The bottom cup holds the bread. The top cup holds the juice. We ask you to take both cups out uh, as you walk by. And then you'll head back to your pew, and then we will take those elements together. If you aren't comfortable taking communion together, we certainly understand that this morning, and you are not by any means required to do that. We would love just to have you celebrate with us as we celebrate in communion together. Elders are going to lead us. The worship team is going to sing. We invite you just to take those elements to hold them together, and we'll celebrate together. sing with us. And I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Cause Jesus paid it Jesus. 
Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. stand in him complete Jesus died my soul to save my lips shall still repeat Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow, he washed it white as snow, he washed it white as snow. Praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who this life up from the dead cause Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow sin had left sin had left a crimson stain he who washed it white as snow. This represents Jesus' body. He took on a body. He redefined what it meant to be a mighty God and became man and became sin for us so that we might have hope. Take and eat and be grateful. This represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. Take and drink. Stand with me this morning for our benediction, please. Our benediction comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning.